In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not there, but so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Today on Notably Disney, I am excited to welcome on composer Jake Monaco. Now you may not be familiar with Jake's name in the same way as you might a Hans Zimmer or James Newton Howard, for example, but you are probably increasingly more familiar with the products that he has been a part of, including a number of Pixar and Disney shorts over the past decade. And he has quite a remarkable career that has involved working with greats like Christoph Beck and really making his own mark, having recently scored the Disney Plus original film Flora and Ulysses as another example. On this episode, we talk about his trajectory as well as a number of the different creations that he has been involved in. Um, I particularly like our discussion of Going Home, which was a really just compelling and resonant short that emerged out of the Walt Disney Animation Studios short circuit series. So Jake and I had a great conversation. You'll learn a little bit about what's in store for him uh, over the coming years as well. And so let's get right into that conversation. Jake Monaco is an accomplished composer known for creating the tunes for many Disney and Pixar's most recent animated fair, including the Forky Asks a Questions shorts uh, that debuted uh, when Disney Plus debuted, uh, the shorts within Walt Disney Animation Studios short circuit series, and Pixar's acclaimed Spark short out. Uh, He also composed Flora and Ulysses for Disney Plus earlier this year. And it's really a pleasure to have Jake on Notably Disney to discuss his career and creations. So welcome, Jake. Thank you so much, Brett. It's, uh, It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I know we have a lot to talk about because you're, we, we basically chatted via email beforehand that basically all the questions I shared with you in advance almost completely covered all of your Disney-related work um, with a few exceptions. <laughs> so, I mean, boy, you have been a, a very busy individual this past decade in terms of your, your work for the Walt Disney Company. I could not be 
more happy and feel more blessed, whatever, to be in this position and to have the contacts and that I have over there and have these relationships with people that I never would have imagined would have come from this line of work. And I am very, very happy to have those friends in my life. And it's just a, it's a bonus that I get to work with them. <laughs> For sure. Well, and I know we're going to uncover a lot of that and, and certainly we'll talk about your, your roots as a composer um, in just a few minutes, but for, for those of uh, listening who may be unfamiliar, um, I understand that you grew up playing the guitar and that was a really big passion of yours. What were some of your music, your formative musical uh, related experiences as a child? I remember in, I guess it was high school, uh, I started I started playing the guitar and it was mainly just by ear and watching like MTV music videos and actually seeing, you know, artists perform. And from there, I started going to concerts um, as a teenager. And I, I mean, I think my first concert was like a Sheryl Crow concert. And that moved over to, uh, I probably saw Dave Matthews Band maybe like 20 times in concert over the course of 10 years or so. Um, again, just like being able to see these musicians and, and perform, um, I think was really inspiring. And it gave me this like charged energy when I'd leave the concert and all I'd want to do is go home and play guitar, um, and try to figure out, you know, what, how he played it or figure out, you know, what this jazz guy was doing or whatever the situation might be. But it was, it always inspired me and it always got me fired up to, you know, go back and, and better my own craft in that respect. Uh, and that turned to my doing some singer songwriter type stuff uh you know writing writing songs in heavily influenced by the type of music that i was listening to at the time um but just kind of working things out and kind of like finding finding my own voice in that respect uh and then i went to the university of richmond in virginia for college at which point um i started working with a couple people and we, we had a little band and uh we got to tour around a little bit um, and we did that through the end of college. It was like end of 2005 or so. Uh, and then things took a little turn and I was looking in another direction and found myself uh, headed out to Los Angeles to go to the USC film scoring program, uh, which is just the one year kind of intensive that takes your, your knowledge of music and composition and helps you hone it in into the craft of applying your writing to film, TV media in any respect. So I take it once you got to California, you were truly soaking up the sun in Charles Crow's works. <laughs> it's true. I actually never thought about that. That's a, uh, that's a very good point. <laughs> what was that we'll shift like? What was that shift like though for you, considering that you were basically moving to, to a place, a program that's known for developing um, amazing composers? How did he process that? To be honest, I, I kind of just took everything in stride and I just kind of rolled with it because even before, before I had applied to this program, I had, I knew who John Williams was. I knew who Danny Elfman was and I didn't know what a bassoon was. So that'll kind of give you the level of <laughs> um, my, 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 my formal training or really overall, not, uh, focus on film scoring at all. I mean, I, I didn't, I always noticed music and film, but I never really put it all together in that respect. Um, so coming out to the program, 
just got me more excited. I, I needed a reason to write a song. And this, I, someone else was giving me a reason to write music. They were literally making a film or making this thing that I then get to accompany. And it's not just me having to try and come up with a idea about some, you know, awful thing that I just went through or some love relationship that I'm, that I'm in the middle of or anything like that. I get to, I get to do those things, but via someone else's eyes in that respect. Well, that's, that's really fascinating. And I know shortly um, into this uh, experience, you started to work with Christoph Beck. And could you talk about that relationship in terms of how learning from and working with him shaped your, your sense of musical identity? Absolutely. Um, when I was in my undergrad at the University of Richmond, I, I held a strong focus in the technology side of music, uh, recording, and I think the biggest thing that I learned during that time was just how to troubleshoot. And it might seem like a very simple or vague description of something, but I think when you get that type of thought pattern going, then it becomes a little bit more intuitive as to how to go about solving a problem. Related to the tech world, I think that that gave me a huge boost um, when I actually went to USC and I had the opportunity to kind of just jump in when something wasn't working and, you know, help help fix it or help get a, get the class back going or whatever it was at the time. And that, I think that, that was a very good move. And I, at, towards the end of the program, this was like May of 2007, um, Chris's previous assistant called the program director and asked for a recommendation. And he said mainly like tech geared. And he just said, just talk to Jake. So <laughs> I went in for an interview with him and, um, and it was great. He's a very, very chill guy. And uh, I was, of course, petrified and, and nervous as anything. So I'm like, oh my God, I'm actually getting an opportunity to, I mean, like, this is a very hard thing to get a job right out of the USC program with, you know, no real life experience and everything. And I'm like, I, I will happily do an assistantship. I don't feel like I'm ready to score a film. So I, I knew that. And I was ready to admit that to myself. Absolutely. Like I had done some shorts and stuff, but I wasn't, wasn't comfortable enough in my own skin in that respect. And I felt like I needed just more mentorship. So being able to start working with Chris um, was, was, a, was a great step in my career path. And starting out in the first year or two, it was, you know, it was personal tasks. It was, I learned how to make a latte. Uh, I learned how to do conforms. And eventually start got to, or I was given the opportunity to address some notes during projects. So there were simple notes on a queue or end something earlier, or maybe a conform to, hey, we got to lose a little bit of time in this queue now. Those were great for me because it gave me the opportunity to really look at the sessions that Chris was working in and kind of analyze how he was doing things so that I could start to learn how to write like him and be able to then kind of, you know, fill in the gap or get the opportunity when the time should come. Um, I felt like I had a, like my own solid musical voice was kind of in place. And what Chris really helped me with was how to keep the music musical while still addressing everything on the visual side of things. And I mean that with like, one thing I love is, is 
even listening to the stuff that are trying to listen, <laughs> listening to the stuff that I try to write uh, outside of the visual, it still stands as a piece to me. Like there's a form, it makes it makes sense, quote unquote, I guess. Um, but that's only because I, my background is mainly in, in songwriting. So I think that's where I naturally tend to go. But like, you know, if something doesn't work in a four bar pattern, there's got to be some other way to address it. And th there are certain tips and tricks that, you know, he would always pull out of his bag and learning some of those was was great. You know, it's how to extend something without it feeling repetitive or get us from point A to point B with a transition and why every note, you know, what what role does it play and how does it tie in? And um, you're always leading somewhere. And so I that was really where that, that was really what I value most um, about my time with him, aside from our friendship, which I still very much value and we're still very close. Um, but he really taught me how to score a film. I think the musical background in undergrad was great. The USC year was great because they helped you learn like what to do and what you are doing. Uh, but then having this relationship with Chris helped me turn it into actual realization of what that means and get seven, eight years of practice. <laughs> Well, and I imagine all of the technical skill sets that you brought to the table that were very distinct probably um, enhanced your, your sense of scope of, of what you could contribute um, to projects. I think the best thing that he asked me to do, it was within the first, I was within the first week of my working there. He was just moving studios from uh, one place in Santa Monica over to another place that he had just bought. And so one of my first tasks was to break down his rig and rebuild it at the new place. So right there, that is like the most bare bones basic thing of like, you gotta take something apart and then rebuild it, you know, five miles away. Um, but that got me into it. And that was, you know, figuring out where all the different little MIDI cables went and things that we don't have to deal with nowadays. <laughs> yeah, the landscape has changed just a bit in the past decade or so, right? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and, and I know, Jake, that some of your, you know, Chris was starting to, to Compose scores for Disney in the early two, 2010s, I guess I should say, with <laughs> the Muppets and Frozen. And and you played a role on that too, in terms of, I know, at least your IMDb indicates with the Muppets that you were a score programmer. So, um, <laughs> well, well, I mean, I'm not sure. I know many folks who are in the entertainment industry have a, a connection or fondness to to the Muppets. Um, did, what was your your sense of having a, a role on on that return to the big screen for this brand? You know, these, something like the Muppets, there's just this gigantic sense of nostalgia. And I'm sure it is for everybody at this point because they've been around for so long. So even the Muppets Haunted Mansion that just came out on Disney Plus, we watched that this weekend and my family loved it. And it's it's just so great to see these familiar characters and the same dry comedy and the same types of, you know, relationships that they've had for I mean, what is it like 30, 40 years? I don't even know. I'm probably speaking far out of turn, but uh, being able to be involved in that is it's, it's part of a, it's part of a legacy. You know, it's like, see, it felt the same way when I got to be part of the, of the, you know, a Scooby-Doo iteration after I, after I had um, kind of gone out on my own and it's, I love it, man. It's, <laughs> it brings back a lot of the, a lot of the childhood stuff, you know, thinking back to like, Muppets take Manhattan and, you know, it's just, I love it. <laughs> and it was also around this time that you started kind of 
you know, carving out a, a career for yourself in terms of composing scores. Um, I know the Struck by Lightning, um, the Chris Colfer film was an example of, of one of your earlier feature films, but how, how did you make sense of the fact that you were not only, you know, you, you had developed this relationship with Chris Beck, but you were also now starting to forge out on your own in terms of being known as like, hey, we can call Jacob to, um, to handle our score. Chris has always been extremely supportive in terms of my trying to pursue outside gigs and start my own career. And he was always there for advice or whatever was needed. Um, Struck by Lightning, for instance, that was actually something that he made the connection for me and the um, the director, Brian Danley, who had directed Saved, which Chris did 2003 or four, I think. Um, but uh, so so Brian came in and Chris was really busy on another project, but, you know, wanted to still be able to be a part of it and stuff. So, again, now these are great learning experiences because I get to, like, develop my own sound for someone that Chris knows the nuances of. And so he can try to, you know, help guide me to he's helping me. He's setting me up for a little bit more success in that respect. So, again, this is every single experience is just learning and building on the previous one. Um, and. Uh, yeah, I think that answers the question. Sorry, I was about to go off on something else. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. I mean, it's, I think what, and I've talked with other composers about this too, but just the role of mentorship and how that manifests in such beautiful qualities where um, it's the notion of like continuing one's legacy and, and also having your protege also de determine their own um, sense of identity and voice. Absolutely. I, I have a small team of my own now and we we call each we call ourselves a family because we're always there to back each other up. Um, you know, if I'm taking a week off to go be with my family and play with my kid, then I've got the support there that I need um, while I leave, and vice versa. And I, I'm a strong proponent of each person of the team has their own life. They have a family. I I am not the type of person that wants to, let alone wants to make someone else work 80 hours a week or something absurd like that. I kind of, you know, I try to cap myself at like 50, 60, depending on what's happening in my, in my life, but um, it's, otherwise it's just burnout and that's not healthy for any of us. So I'd rather have another person that knows what we're doing and be able for us to, you know, change in and out because we're only going to be more successful in that respect um, so that we don't burn out. <laughs> we don't burn out like that. Um, and so I look at that as well as, you know, being able to give back just like Chris did to me, being able to help foster these careers. And I mean, everybody that I've been able to, you know, have the privilege of, of working with has a lot of potential. And I think that they all have, will have careers of their own very, very shortly. And, um, you know, it feels good to, to kind of help them get there just like Chris did for me. So it's nice. Well, that's, that's very, you know, poignant. And another, you know, area I want to touch on, which is really kind of the start of your, you know, you defining your own space in, in the realm of Disney, uh, were the As Told by Emoji series of shorts, <laughs> which are just extremely cute and clever and fun and succinct, but boy, is a lot packed in. And you know, you handled a bunch of them, you know, everything from Tangled to Aladdin. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, given that you're dealing with something that's basically condensed a 90 minute film into three or four minutes and knowing <laughs> that each of those films 
already has a musical tone and style, but you're, you know, you're kind of bringing your own uh, sense of voice into this. How did you aim to capture both the sense of nostalgia, but also your own perspective into this very quick storytelling format? Great question. Uh, <laughs> the, I think the As Told by Emoji series is like the quintessential um, project or uh, task for any budding composer to be a part of you are required to write in so many different styles and to sound like so many different people to evoke that. And all of these shorts had to go through Disney branding or brand or whatever it is so that they can actually approve the music. Because if I had thrown a jazz band in for Frozen, it just wasn't going to fly. So <laughs> luckily Frozen was the first one in the lineup and I, I was just freshly off of frozen with Chris. And so uh, it was, it was talked about with a couple people. And then I got to meet the director who's uh, Gino, I think his name was. Um, and we, we got along very, very well. And uh, it was, it was great to be able to evoke that style. I thought it was kind of a one and done thing. And one of, the, one of the other challenges is um, I don't I forget which ones are actually on Disney Plus and posted on on YouTube or whatever now, but like we did two versions of every single one, and each one of them, where there would be a snippet of a song that was referenced, so I.e. Let It Go in Frozen or the um, uh, the you know like the Mother Gothel song in Tangled, and yeah. When Will My Life Begin, and then I mean Aladdin. There's a bunch of them in there, so. They, they, we got licensing deals to like actually use little snippets of the, of not of the actual score, but of the, of the melodies and whatnot. Um, so just trying to weave those in by themselves is, is a challenge. Then when you get to like actually having to do something that now sounds so much like it, but we have to do a non, a non-licensed version so that it can go on certain platforms. Um, you know, it's just an additional challenge on top of that. The, uh, it was great to be able to launch into the world of Alan Menken specifically with all of the, you know, with, with Tangled, with, um, with Beauty and the Beast, with Aladdin, with all of these. And uh, there was, there was a handful of other ones. I'm like spacing out on it now, but um, that were all like, like, yeah. Okay. So Zootopia, like that embraced the the sound of the score. Yeah, exactly. But like things like Cinderella, I think was one of them that, there wasn't so much of a sound from that film that I was really able to carry over because it was so long ago. And it's, and these emoji things, they, I mean, they need to be scored a little closer to how maybe like a Warner brothers animated property might be scored with everything being very, pardon the term Mickey Mouse, um, you know, with, with hitting everything and being spot on and while also trying to keep it a musical through line because I love doing that. And that's, that is the musical, musically rewarding part of the process for me. The nightmare before Christmas one was probably the most fun to do. And that was one where it was just like, I get to take all of the crazy stuff that Elfman does and to be able to, you know, play with it and do what I want to do <laughs> while scoring this like incredibly zany, like iteration of it. And that was, that was definitely one of my favorite ones. I think it's really, really neat the way they did that. 
I mean, and they have so much repeat value too, which is really great. And you're right. I mean, many of them are under the extras on Disney plus. So it further widens the accessibility they're on YouTube. Um, And, you know, I, one, I guess, theme that I've noticed across some of the different projects that you've um, composed the scores for is that there's already often a sense of musical identity associated with the project. So in the case of Forky asks a question, of course, Randy Newman's um, signature tone is stamped all over the Toy Story brand, but in a lot of these non-feature film projects, you have folks like Michael Giacchino coming in for the specials, or in the case of Forky, um, it's Jake Monaco's show. So I guess I'm wondering in terms of when there's such an established sense of style, you're, you're both wanting to honor that because it's within the brand and world of these characters that we're, we're so familiar with, but there's also a sense of you're, you're a new individual coming into the project. When, when Forky emerged, I guess I'm wondering how, how you recognize both honoring Granny Newman, but also putting your own stamp on it. Uh, the first thing that Bob Peterson said when I chatted with him, or when we, when we walked into spotting, um, was that he's like, I just laid a jazz tune in there and it works. And I really like having just something simple because Forky doesn't need to be played so much. He's funny as anything just by himself. Tony Hale does an incredible job with that character. And I immediately fell in love with that. And I had seen all these shorts and been working on them before Toy Story 4 ever came out. And honestly, when I saw Toy Story 4, I was I was just a tiny bit disappointed that there wasn't like way more Forky in it because his true character shines in, in, in his true personality really shines in those shorts. So I felt like I was like on the inside, I get to like no Forky before everybody else did. Um, <laughs> but Bob, Bob was like, I, I don't want it to hit too much. It, it, it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to work very hard. And so I think I did probably like six versions of money, the very first one. And it wasn't until finally like version six or seven that it clicked that it, he really meant it. Like, I really don't need to hit anything because even though I had the jazz flavor and I had like the running through line, I would still like start and stop to acknowledge little things that Forky was doing because that's what I learned to do or learned how to do and, you know, be able to do that. And it was like, it's still just feeling a little like it's drawing too much. It's too distracting when it starts and stops. And finally I was just like, all right, I'm just going to write a tune and let's pick our three points to acknowledge or to comment on. Um, And, you know, obviously each short has, you know, whether it's, you know, two or three little moments where, Obviously, the sentimental moments in all of these where we do reference Newman's score from Monsters, Inc., uh, Boo's theme by Boo, um, you know, that, that, was, that was meant as a very stark comedic transition to go from this, like, aloof character that is a spork to this incredibly poignant moment of, like, this, like, realization and epiphany. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, he's back to a normal self and rolling his googly eyes or whatever it is that he's doing. Um, and uh, so it, again, these were like, these were just the points. And finally by like episode, like, you know, three or something like that, it was, I, I was able, okay, so Bob, how about this, this and this? And he's like, great, let's do it. And so I just, I'd write a new little tune that would hopefully, you know, like jive along with whatever was happening there. That was really the first five or so um, episodes uh, art was a little bit different because that wanted he wanted like a renaissance feel and that was actually the one that i i kind of did a spec to um in order to get this gig just because it was so different than all the other ones 
Um, so I like went and bought the Renaissance samples and did what I needed to do um, in order to kind of put this in. And, and again, it was I, I was just hitting way too much um, or commenting on way too much. But it was enough to show them that like, hey, let's work together because it's it'll improve it a little bit from just licensing a jazz tune and throwing it in there. Um, <clears throat> now over to the poignant by Boo little portions. Um, that was not for lack of trying. And that was definitely a temp love situation. Um, they put it in there and that was, that's like, that is one of those pieces that when you hear it, it's like, that's Pixar. That's monster. Like that just has such a specific musical identity and like connection to that world. And it just made sense to have it. I mean, like I, I did a lot of different iterations of different things and it, it never felt as good. And because it just wasn't, and it didn't have that nostalgic connection. Um, so we licensed it and that was okay because I'd rather have the real thing in there than something that I ripped off in there. <laughs> no, it makes complete sense. I remember when I first watched um well, they actually screened the What Is Money short at D23 Expo that year. And I remember seeing it and thinking to myself, well, that's really interesting. That's not only hearkening back to Newman, but Monsters, Inc., not even from, uh, a cue from one of the Pixar, uh, Toy Story films, I should say. Yeah. Um, but what I appreciate about folks like you, Jake, and, and I was thinking back to Christopher Willis too, folks like you both where you're composing shorts with that covers so many different genres, it really speaks on your musical versatility to be able to hit on the theme, like you mentioned, the Renaissance one and the art short. So I imagine that's both a challenge and a, a massive opportunity for experimentation. Absolutely. And you know, it's funny, I was listening to the I was listening to the podcast with Chris, Chris and Elise Willis. And I loved when Chris went into the fact that like of his scholarly background and you know his being a professor at the university and and this was like his thing like he knew how to research specific genres and immerse in and you know immerse himself into it and i was listening to that I'm like that's so fun like i mean i because i do the exact same thing i get an assignment i go scour the internet and i gotta break down what it is in order to do what it is that i need to do sometimes i'll cheat by writing a tune and then um i am definitely not a jazz person i did not grow up with jazz. Um, I enjoy it for what it is, but I am not a jazz, you know, pianist or guitarist or anything. That is not, it's just not my world. Um, and I admit that and I want to learn more and I'm, I'm getting better as the years, <laughs> as the years go on, but I'm not afraid to ask someone who is, who is a jazzer that knows how to do these arrangements, that knows how to do the voicing and put it more into that world as, you know, some, some arrangement help because I'm, I'm not going to be able to do all of that by myself. Um, so I did, you know, like there's the jazz thing and then, you know, all these different genres. Um, if I can't get to it myself <laughs> with that, I'll, I, I have no shame in asking for some help. And, uh, and I use it as a reverse mentorship in that respect. You know, someone on my team like is a jazz pianist. So he's able to teach me a lot about that stuff while I'm able to teach him about the actual scoring of it in, in that respect. So it's, it's a great back and forth that I have with, with those, with the members of my team like that. Well, and along those lines, I, I feel like this also extended to when you composed Lamp Life, the Bo Peep short that debuted on Disney+. Plus. Um, and with Lamp Life, I mean, it's very funny, and it's nice that we get a little bit more of 
Bo Peep's backstory, but we find out about all the adventures that she went on uh, during that period between um, Toy Story 2 and, and Toy Story 4. And one of those is that she's on a ship and there's like a little <laughs> sea shanty queue. I'm like, did you ever think you'd be creating like a five second sea shanty in a Pixar short? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I mean, all of those little opportunities there, it's, they're so fun the way that they put the stuff together. And I, I got to, I, I look at every single one of those as just a neat opportunity for what it is and, you know, embrace it in, and however I can. So the sea shanty or, you know, the, the party music or whatever it is, you know, sometimes you think of those things that's like, oh, it's not really the score. It's just like, you know, some source thing or whatever. It's like, no, it's still part of the musical scope of the, of the project and, you know, like of the identity of the film. And so I, I mean, I think I started with each one of those actually having a little theme within them. Um, and, you know, it got, it got pared down just because they were so very fast. But um, it's I, I, I love making the connections like that and, you know, threading I'm very thematic in, in all these respects. So, I mean, like Bo has a very specific theme that plays on the music box at the very beginning. And that is it throughout the course of the entire short. Um, it's funny, you know, speaking of like, staying in the sonic world of toy story um valerie the director who is wonderful to work with um like one of the first things was like i don't want it to sound like toy story <laughs> so immediately I, I i was like okay so where are we gonna go with it and uh and you know she wanted a little bit more uh she wanted i think she wanted it to be a little bit more accessible small um you know introspective in that respect so i that's where we came just with the smaller ensemble and you know, it starts off as a very organic thing and just, I think, a little bit closer to the world of Toy Story. And then as the story progresses, we start to watch and see how Bo, quote unquote, beefed up. <laughs> and, you know, like she became the this, you know, this kind of badass. Like, sorry. Uh, I was just going to use the same word. Totally okay. <laughs> And so we kind of like helped get her there, um, which is which was a cool musical journey in and of itself. I would agree. And I feel like I really came to appreciate her three sheep um, as a result of the short as well. So there you go. I love it. <laughs> you know, kind of moving forward with your, your Pixar career, Jake, um, one of my fav absolute favorite Pixar shorts now um, is, is Out. Um, which was a, a milestone for the studio in terms of its representation for the LGBTQ plus community in, in terms of just showing just the beautiful nature of, of you know, owning yourself and, and rekindling a, a bond with parents. And, and that's what I think a lot of the Spark Shorts have been extremely effective with covering a whole range of topics. And I guess I'm wondering what flavors did you want to bring to the score? Because you have this, you know, very serious subject matter of a, a young man coming out to his folks, but there's also such zaniness um, that manifests in terms of switching bodies with the dog. Um, you, you, I mean, kind of like any of these shorts, you're packing a lot into a very concentrated period of time, but here is an opportunity where there's such, um, such significance. Um, how, how did you want that to translate in terms of the score that you're lending to this project? So, I got brought on to out very, very early, like when it was still in story and like rough, rough animatic stages. And um, Steve Hunter, the director, uh, who also very, very lovely. By the way, all of these directors and all these people that I've met, 
um, all stem from my taking a trip up there to meet Alan Barilero from Piper um, because I got to kind of just help bring that across the finish line with the amazing score that that Adrian Ballou put together. Um, he had a lot of great ideas and, you know, it's like just because of the eight years or whatever it was of experience with Chris, being able to take those ideas and just kind of like shape them a little bit more um, to complement the picture a little bit. I go up there and like within the first three hours, I've, I've probably met a dozen people and it just so happens that all of these people are also really good friends. They don't just work together. Like they all, they've all been together for like 20, 25 years at this point. So um, being able to then have these relationships, every time I'd go up there for whatever meeting, I would see Steve or, you know, I'd see whoever it was and be able to, you know, then, uh, you know, continue to foster those relationships. So Steve was very early in the process of out. And um, I, you know, he was, he was talking about like, you know, I just don't know what to do music musically. And I, I sent him this piece that, that I had done just like the rough concept kind of thing. That was just, it was all a drum kit and these big, uh, they're, they're called boom whackers. They're, <laughs> they're pitched tubes very much along the lines of like blue man group. And um, they're like, I mean, a couple of them are like, five, six feet tall, and you put these little caps on them and you get these really low, like boom, boom, boom. So I'm using those as like the bass notes kind of thing. And then, you know, in order to have some sort of tonality with it, you know, I'd use a couple of them or I'd, you can hit them on your leg. I've, I can use different different things to hit the tubes or you can kind of bend the hole on, on one side of the tube to kind of bend the pitch. It's all sorts of cool things you can do with these. So this piece just kind of like showcased a, a few of those things I sent to him. He's like, I love this. I love it. So right there, I was like, okay, then I gave myself some constraints just because if I do that at the beginning of a project, it helps me stay a little bit more focused as to what I'm trying to do. And then usually those constraints kind of lift as the project moves forward. But I was like, all right, I'm only going to use percussion or things that can be hit or struck. So that's my goal. And it was actually pretty successful aside from a little bit of strings that we ended up, ended up adding um, just to help, thicken some stuff like a lot of the sentimental things are all bowed vibes um otherwise it's you know it sticks with a lot of the percussion um just within within the entire score so i sent him this piece and we didn't then it six months later there's like a little bit of an animatic and so i write a couple more and then we get like our main theme and i kind of bookend it a little bit it's still very loose though so i'm giving him stuff just to start to listen to and be inspired by and then finally when like a first take of animation comes back and it's like you know all the music is chopped shit and uh but it's like it's it's there like the idea is there the sonic identity of it he's already in love with so it was like selling it would like that was done which was which was excellent we got to spend the time then continuing to shape and just figure out however much we can make it better like there's a lot of experimentation that happens with, with that at Pixar, you know, like we want to try something and, you know, okay, let's completely reverse that. Let's drop it out here and bring it in here instead or whatever. So there's a lot of going back and forth just to find what was going to be right and really try, try to find how delicate we can go and how much we can stay out of music in certain spots. It's one thing that we don't typically see with a lot of these Disney and Pixar shorts where we, don't have the music. And I think that's one thing that Spark Short, that the Spark Shorts have been doing great or doing very well because they allow the space, which then 
makes the music more impactful when it comes in. And I think that plays a key role in the middle of the film when the dog bites mom, mom runs out, and there's no music. You just sit with mom. And I think that that makes it so much more impactful when the music does come in to really support her emotion. And we're not ahead of her, we're staying with her. Yeah, and I think that particular moment also illustrates too, because it was, it's, you know, so unexpected for, uh, for the dog to bite mom. And, and so the shock of that also, I think, as you're illustrating, is, is perfectly matched with silence because it's like you're, you're still processing, right? So if you have the music inserted in that spot, it's almost going five steps ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's I mean, it's a, it's an amazing short on on all those fronts. And and I, and I feel like similar similarly in terms of just touching on difficult themes um, or, or or moments in people's lives that are very significant, such as coming out, I think also presents itself in the short circuit series. I mean, the uh, maybe not crosswalk. I mean, that's that's not maybe a <laughs> defining moment of someone's life, but. Um, which I think is still extremely clever. Going home, I've watched that maybe five times now. And I think there are certain shorts or certain pieces that as a viewer, I experience and I'm thinking, I cannot separate the music and the art because it's so intertwined. And the really evocative piano-based score um, for that is just extremely moving. And I think, I mean, it's one of the, the most enjoyable pieces I've heard from, from your work so far talk about that because that's a it's just it's stunning it, it's stunning it it moves me to tears and, and the score is what drives it more than I think just as much as the animation does the, the music captures everything perfectly the motion and the cyclical nature of it I, I really appreciate that Brad thank you so much um I so Tom McDougal who was the head of music for Disney animation and Pixar until he then was promoted recently to head of everything um had called me and was like hey i have this this like project it's these short circuit things but you know i i think it'd be really i think it'd be cool if you wanted to work with a couple of them and i mean there's no really budget or anything i was like of course not whatever like yes i would love to because any of these opportunities are so great especially with first-time directors like they are they're hungry to learn and they're hungry to you know interact with you and figure out what's going to be best for their short too um Jakob and the uh, and the producer had put in, I think, a, a piano piece from Amelie. And as soon as it started playing, it was just like one of those things that like, oh, how am I going to beat this? And so <laughs> I knew what I needed to do. And it was like, it, I like the piano vibe was there. And he knew, he knew that that was the kind of the, 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 the vibe that he wanted. Um, but like, it wasn't really playing to picture so much. And, um, you know, there's definitely still, there was still something lacking, but I knew that it needed to be like a piano-based emotional thing. Um, there are not opportunities like that short that I or that I get very often, let alone exist. Um, and I think when someone, when a director, or when a writer creates something like this, um, it really does invite these amazing opportunities, not only for music, but with art direction and with every single aspect, because there's just a, there's a different vision for the ending. It's not just for entertainment, but it really is for the art of it as well. Um, it's also a subject matter that 
you know, like hasn't really been tackled. Let alone there's there. I mean, like so there's a nice like real life resolve in the end of it, and I think that that's really important too. Is that it's so accessible to everyone. Um. So having having said all that, uh, I got the opportunity to just sit down and I sat down at a real piano and I wrote a theme and. I think that that was just the best part of the process is being able to do that. And like, even apart from picture, and then I brought it to the picture and then it really was just a little bit of shaping and then, you know, filling in the kind of the, the Excel, the escalation as he actually does arrive home and starts to walk down the pathway um, to where you arrive at the emptiness. And again, the silence it's just so important <laughs> because it makes it so much yeah. better when it comes back in and the payoff is there. Um, and it's so, it's also so great to be able to work with people that aren't afraid of silence. I think in animation specifically, everybody's so scared of it. Um, and I think it's, it's, it is, it's very impactful when used in the, in the right way. Um, I love that piece and I am definitely not a pianist. Uh, it is, <laughs> I, I actually, I had a piano reduction of it done so that I can try to learn how to play it. And I'm still in the process of trying to figure it out, um, but I'm going to get there at some point. Uh, <laughs> so sitting there and like, you know, literally just like playing one piece at a time with my two little fingers or whatever, <laughs> and then the melodies on a different pass, but I knew what I wanted to do. So um, it was, uh, I just can't say enough good things about that short. It's, it was very musically rewarding as well as just, I mean, in general, very rewarding. I, I hope Disney sells the sheet music for it, not only to expand the, the reach of your work, but I think so people can, can own that because I think it's just, it's stunning. It really is. I know I'd love to so play it. So <laughs> I play the piano, well, but not, not fantastically, but I would love to play that sometime. Well, that is going to be my new goal is to, uh, to get, to get that released. <laughs> I'll let you know when it happens. It should. Is it? It's not available on on iTunes or Spotify, is it? Uh, no, not yet. I have been. Uh, I we're working on it right now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> TBD. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, because I think that's that's the type of piece that I feel like really could be leveraged. So um, exciting. Well, I want to. I'll want want to hear more in due time. But um, kind of wrapping up, Jake. I know that, you know those yep. shorts were uh, you know recently released um, earlier this year. You had. Florent Ulysses, which was a Disney Plus original feature. Um, so a lot, you, you have a lot on your plate. So what are some projects that might be on the horizon for you that you can talk about, Disney or, or not Disney? Um, just as busy on the horizon as it has been behind. <laughs> um, so there is uh a show, a, an Amazon Prime show that came out called Do Ray and Me. Um, it just came out last month. Uh, that was kind of my year. It's my COVID project. Um, we, we did like 50 episodes over the course of the year. And it's a music theory based preschool animated show. Kristen Bell, Jackie Toen are voices. And it's just great. There's a song for every episode that um, David Schuler and Jackie Toen wrote. And I got to draw from the song in order to inspire the score for each episode because each episode's song is a totally different genre in order to expose young kids to different genres or, you know, what is tempo or what is, what are dynamics and things like that. And so there's different songs that 
embrace those teaching moments or whatever it is. And so it's like one score is eighties and one score is like doo-wop one score is an opera. And so again, these opportunities where you just get to write in all of these different, in these different languages, which is great. Um, that, that'll be kind of continuing to trickle out over this year and next. Um, it's an Apple TV preschool animated show that should be coming out next year. Um, a Warner Brothers Tasmanian devil based movie that um, I am about to finish up. And, uh, and I'm starting to work on something that on a Pixar series, which I am very excited about. <laughs> oh, that you couldn't be more elusive, but yet I also know all the things that are coming out from Pixar. Does it involve perhaps, I don't know, uh, different takes on a, on a series of events? Um, actually, no. It, oh, it it's not that one. It does. It, do, it lives in a different world. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, well, more to come. All the more reason to have you back on the show when you can talk about that. So... <laughs> No, that's great, Jake. That's wonderful. Uh, no, very, very, very excited. And um, I, like I said, I, I very much value my my relationship with my relationships with Disney and Pixar. And uh, I'm just very happy with all the all the people that I've met and all the friends that I've made along the way. That's great. Well, it's continuing to materialize with with all these ventures and outside of Disney and Pixar as well. It sounds like so. Absolutely. So, Tasmanian Devil. Ooh, that's that's intriguing. You know, that was my favorite Warner Brothers character when I was a kid. So when that opportunity came up, I was like, oh, I can't say no to that because I don't really want to do it. <laughs> and also, I've never written something with you know Australian uh, or Australian centric stuff. So you know, getting to uh, get a didgeridoo and a jaw harp and a gum leaf and a bull roar and uh, seeing what we can do with that. <laughs> I mean, that's what I mean. It sounds like that's what keeps you fresh as a composer, with whether it be the Do Re and Mi and and this, in terms of just continually utilizing different instruments and and approaches. So probably Never keeps you fresh. Bored. Absolutely, never gets bored. <laughs> that's great. Well, let's wrap up with some uh, common Disney-related questions that I ask of all my guests. Um, so for those of you who are composers or musicians, I, I ask a few music-related questions, um, as well as just a, a random question that varies with each guest. So, Jake, I'm wondering, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? While growing up, in terms of, like, songs, I would say it was Aladdin or Lion King. I think those were the most impactful when I was a kid. Uh, after or right around the time when I was getting into film scoring, though, is when Wally came out, and that just floored me. And my love affair with Thomas Newman um, began around then. So <laughs> uh, I've, I I very much enjoy all of his stuff, and I think uh, I, I just I love the soundtrack to Wally. Yes, well, and, and Thomas Newman, of course, has been threaded across many Pixar projects too. Yeah, so. <laughs> absolutely. That's great. That's the follow. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, how do you follow up? How, how do you walk in the footsteps of Thomas Newman or Randy Newman for that matter, right? You start by scoring as told by emojis so that yes. you can learn how to do that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. See, good training. Good training. There we go. What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Let's see. Wait, what was the last, what was the last musical that came out? Frozen 2 uh unknown has just been in our house so much so so much um before that though a lot of the moana songs kind of resonated 
with me. Um, How Far I'll Go is another one that's just like, I'll be walking around and be like, start singing that in my head. I'm like, what is that? Oh, get out. <laughs> it's funny. And joining us on the other line is Ali Cravalho. Let's see how she reacts to that. <laughs> that's great. Uh, Jake, is there a Disney film that you feel has the most underrated music that doesn't get its attention? I One of the most underrated Disney films, and it comes as a package, uh, to me is Emperor's New Groove. Oh yeah. I that is one of my absolute favorites. My my Wi-Fi password is llama face. So I mean like <laughs> that's how much I, I am into that. And there's a really great story that accompanies that film. There's a documentary about how it was a straight up musical with songs by Sting. And it was a totally different direction and it all you know had to get scrapped and reworked. There's still a couple of Sting songs in there supposed to be like this big Eartha Kit number um, with Yzma. And so, you know, I think that combination and that story behind that film is, should be shared more. I think it's, it's great stuff. <laughs> I c- completely agree. Snuff Out the Light is like a bombastic number that I think could play easily on Broadway or in animated form. It's just, I mean, we've got the storyboards, but nothing more. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someday, maybe. And it's just, no, you're right. It's a fascinating film. Uh, interviewed John Debney last year on the podcast. And he was talking about, I mean, he, uh, I mean, he entered the project at a very unique stage. And I mean, there was, there was already this sense of musical tone because of Sting, but again, so much switching in terms of the plot that um, not an easy situation to enter into. So, but the product is still amazing. So. Completely agreed. <laughs> there you go. Uh, last question for you. Uh, this is a random one. So obviously, as I've shared and as we've talked about, your your productivity on the Disney and Pixar shorts front is very extensive. Do you have a favorite Disney or Pixar animated short film just over the years, one that you continue to go back to and watch or listen to? Uh, absolutely. Um, it, it really started our or my relationship with Disney animation um, when Chris was hired to do Paperman, and that short again it just floored that 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 I can equate that to going home in that respect like it is just so amazing and poignant and there's not a lot of like super jokey stuff but it, it is just it is it is just a amazing accessible story and. I think that the, you know, the music that, that he did in that is great and it's just empowering and it just feels good. And it's so crazily juxtaposed to the black and white vintage feel and the art direction. Um, it's just a, it's a beautiful piece of art in general. And I, I absolutely love that short. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I see the parallels between that and, and going home, just really, again, defining moments in, in people's lives and, and, and being a bit more serious. Um, but there's that, you know, the playfulness with all the, all the um, paper airplanes falling. Down. Yeah. 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 So. <laughs> but all handled in a very non-jokey musical way. Right. And I mean, it, it, it really works. And like, you know, and leaving again, listening to that score apart from picture, it's a very pleasurable listening experience and you get all the emotions still. So that that's what I love about like, you know, being able, I think that was one of the best things that I learned from Chris is being able to, to kind of take that and, and have it be a self-sustaining identity as well. 
Yeah. I think yeah. that's a fantastic choice for the record. And I actually have a lithograph um, of uh, the main characters from Paper Man. So. Do you really? Yeah. I, I that. Yeah, I will. It's, it's from um, D23 had an event back in 2012 oh, where they were focusing on Disney animation and its history. Yeah. And they, they gave out like a lithograph that had Tangled Ever After, Paper Man, and Wreck-It Ralph. Um, wow. So it's really cool. Um, so. That's so funny. You know, in, in, our, in our house, we actually have we have 12 Siri cells hanging in like our little like stair <laughs> where most people might put pictures of their child and their family going up the stairs. We have Disney Siri cells. So, but it's all the classics. Like probably it was like, we have one, we have a Disney, Disney, um, we have a Peter Pan, Dumbo, Aladdin, Little Mermaid, like all the films that my husband and I grew up with as kids and like are the most impactful and most nostalgic to us. And, they're just they're there and a part of our family, and it's it's so cool to be able to have those to to look at and know that that they're a part of Disney history. Oh yes, I, I think so, and I want to show you. My listeners cannot appreciate this, but you can. So I have yes. a, a Forky and Rex. Oh, let me turn off the blurriness, but yeah, yes. never got one of those from Bob, but I I, I got the Lamp Life one. Oh, you really? Because yeah. they did. They did both of them at the same time. That's so funny. I got to hit. <laughs> I got to hit a bop for one of those. I love yeah. that. I love it. <laughs> so, very fun. A nice little reminder of, of Forky. And it's on. I usually have it magnetically um, attached to my whiteboard in the back. So uh, so my, my viewers, when I'm doing Zoom meetings, can see a little bit of Pixar magic. Um, Jake. How can listeners stay connected with you um, on social media? Your IMDb page obviously shows your uh, history and, and future, but tell us more about how folks can follow you. Uh, I am, I'm actually not really an avid social media poster by any means. Um, when there are big things, I'll usually post on you know Facebook or Instagram or whatever. But um, otherwise, I, I am about the personal contacts in that respect. So uh, my website has a little contact thing on it and you can always just feel free to drop an email there and it comes right to me. And um, I always do my best to try and respond in a timely manner, depending on what insanity the, the mouse is handing down or <laughs> whatever else is happening in my life at the moment. <laughs> no, and that is, I, I do like your website too, in terms of showing all the different um, projects that you've been involved in. So it's nice to have that Thank personal you. touch. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Jake, it has been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you again for, for being on Notably Disney. And I know many of us will be going back to Disney Plus later to, to hear some examples of, of your projects. Thank you so much, Brad. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for talking. As you can tell, Jake has a lot on his plate and there's a lot for you to check out in the meantime via revisiting some of those shorts. I definitely watched the Forky ones again uh, as well as really maybe campaigning for some of these scores via these shorts to get their own releases because I think there would definitely be an audience for that. I really enjoyed Jake's time and generosity. What a dynamic individual and certainly someone that will continue to watch and listen to for many years to come. Thanks again, Jake. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. 
I also encourage you to send me an email to NotablyDisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney.